This is the Two Lawyers Walking to a Bar podcast. I'm Lee Bergstein. And I'm Cooper Knowlton. And we were supposed to be drinking Dr. Pepper with Adam Safer, but uh, we are not drinking Dr. Pepper. We're drinking water, which is which is good, too. <laughs> Adam Safer is uh, of Safe Security and provides uh, investigative and security services to his clients. And we're really happy to have him here today. Thank you. And uh, I think uh, vodka translates to water in Russian, so I think we're all right. I know you had a vodka before you came here. Yes. So since we like to talk about booze a little bit, what kind of vodka did you have before you came? You know, I don't know. It was whatever they serve at the Rainbow Room. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have a preference when it comes to vodka? You know, um, Grey Goose is the family favorite. I I won't turn away a Tito's, but, you know, as long as it's smooth, doesn't bite. No, uh, you know, uh, Ukrainian potato vodka. Yeah. I'm, I'm a great goose guy, too. Cooper, do you have a vodka preference? I have no preference. I try and stay away from vodka as much as possible. <laughs> I feel like vodka reminds me of my college days. It's like drinking vodka out of those, like, Poland Spring bottles mixed with Gatorade and mixed with... Yeah, but you're drinking the well vodka versus a nice I, glass of... Poland Spring, you're drinking parking lot vodka. Right. right? Did they find that out? It's true. So Blosky vodka. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get going. Um... Adam, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like? Sure. Um, I was born in Los Angeles, which has both blessed and afflicted me being a Rams fan lifelong. Mm. Uh, Moved a couple times when I was really young when my father was working for the federal government, but settled and graduated high school uh, in Northern Virginia. Okay. Uh, We were kind of the satellite family at the time outside of New York. Uh, for a family that was from the city and eventually uh, Long Island. Um, But for the most part, I grew up outside of D.C. in uh, Northern Virginia. And what did your dad do for the federal government? He uh, started off in the predecessor agency to the Drug Enforcement Administration. Uh, And uh, then for most of my time growing up, he worked for the U.S. Marshal Service, where he headed up the Witness Protection Program and then was uh, the uh, chief of operations uh, for for the Marshal Service. Hmm. And did you think as a child that that was the field and the career that uh, you might have later on? You know, um, I knew that I would it would be a part of my life, which it really has become, but uh, not the uh, not the main part. I've got some other uh, other proclivities. <laughs> How early on in your career did you start thinking about law school? You know, I. Um, I graduated, the dumbest thing that I ever did was I graduated the University of Virginia undergrad in three years. So. Why? It was bad, <laughs> bad judgment, <laughs> lack of uh, <laughs> lack of social development, whatever it was. Um, and uh, Not really, that's not the time that you want to get through quickly. That's exactly. That's the time you want to slow down. Got to be on that seven-year plan. Right. Well, I, I ended up on the six-year plan because I went to law school, uh, My what would have been my fourth year of uh college was uh, my first year of law school. Huh. I actually took a class in the law school as an undergrad. Huh. I took uh, constitutional history with a, with a very good professor. So you went straight through? Straight through. And where did you go to law school? Uh, also at the University oh, of Virginia. Was that common? Did a lot of students go from Virginia undergrad to UVA law school? You know, the term double who was, was in the lexicon, but it, it certainly didn't dominate. The, the law school vis-a-vis the undergrad, I think, had a little bit more Northeast. Uh-huh. How did you decide, at what point in, in your undergrad experience did you decide to go to law school? I was bribed. <laughs> <laughs> by who, I wonder? Yeah. By, uh, by a uh, 1978 Corvette. Huh. I mean, it didn't actually do the bribing, but that was the, that was the form of the bribe. Yeah. It's a familiar story. Yeah, exactly. I figured you didn't say to yourself, I have to get out of here because you stayed there. So there was no thought I, that you had I to get I stayed out there. Of. In fact, my reunion is this year, and I'm not on the official reunion list because it's all screwed up because I was in another graduating class technically. But I'm, I consider this to be my reunion year. What did you think of your law school experience? You know, it was amazing, um, mostly for the people I met. Um, you know, UVA law was very much in the uh, orbit of the Chicago School of Law and Economics and uh, had some, you know, professors who were definitely, you know, mind bending and game changing sure. and would publish, but also, you know, could teach. The, you know, um, probably the biggest thing that happened in law school is I met my wife there. 
when I uh, when I borrowed her notes. <laughs> uh, we had I did not know that. Yes, it was the um, the highest paid, other than the football coach, is always the highest paid state employee everywhere. It was the highest paid employee in the state of Virginia, who was the former chairman of the FCC. And um, the irony was he was not a great communicator. And um, the uh, my wife took diligent and excellent left brain notes. Uh, and uh, my best friend, best man, somebody I actually saw tonight on the way here, uh, tended to not go to that class. And borrowing her notes and studying them was uh, uh, one of the, uh, what's the law school term, considerations of <laughs> falling in love. <laughs> what was your favorite class in law school? Favorite class in law school? Probably being involved in the libel show band. No, I, I, I had a... Um, I actually took, this is going to sound strange, but I took a real estate finance class hmm. that, uh, you know, had a really good professor. It was a mix of business school and, uh, uh, and, and, and law students. And it was a nice hybrid mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, law and business. And we learned some, some practical things. Um, I liked my entertainment law class. Uh, that was, that was pretty interesting. Um, I think I, I did get a chance to do some uh, independent study, uh, and I wrote a paper on stadium finance. And uh, that it's funny you, you got to pay relics twenty two bucks to get it now, which is ridiculous. But uh, I'm sure we can get it for free. If we ask the right people. Nice, right? nice. <laughs> and um, I, uh, I I also did one on uh, copyright issues in China, hmm. and some of this stuff has actually touched some things I've been involved with. That you know just wrote papers in the abstract and in law school, and you know just happened to come across. So. You said before we started recording that you went to law school not wanting to be a lawyer. Yes, yeah, I, uh, and and in my heart of hearts, I probably still want to be a musician. But uh, they, uh, I was, uh, I think my first year of law school, I lived very close to the old pianos, and you know I would study. You know, I had to pass. You know, and uh, you know it's pretty pretty voluminous stuff. But, uh, you know, I played a lot, really learned how to play the piano in law school and hmm. uh, you know, met my wife and got involved in some good stuff. But, you know, the, re- the, real, the real thing about UVA Law School was uh, just the people. I mean, the, the students that I, that I met there, I mean, interesting people, quirky people, people, you know, I went straight through. So, um, you know, some of the people had already had one, one guy, uh, for example, was an undercover New York City cop in Chinatown. He was 36 years old in his first year, and he he joined the cheerleading team and undergraduate. He was going undercover in the cheerleading. No, team? he That's just cool. he just decided to join. He had a pet monkey. He joined the cheerleading. <laughs> of course, team. he had a pet monkey. He, he threw Cheerleader. a cheerleader yeah. up in the air. He he caught her and broke his arm. I mean, it was just you know there was just so many people from so many different you know you know walks of life. People who you know there was one guy who made it his business to meet every dictator on the planet, get a picture. I mean, it's just there was just like maybe I just fell in with like a crowd of strange people, <laughs> but uh, there was there was definitely you know, and and the speakers that came there. I mean yeah. Scalia would would visit all the uh-huh. time, you know, because you had the the proximity to D.C. Sure. So no, it was, it was I I can't say anything but good about uh, UVA Law School. I'm curious. Similar to me, you you had I know probably creative aspirations before going to law school, and still went to law school. How how do you juggle that? It sounds like you you know you played piano and learned piano. I did a lot of probably my best creative writing during my three years in law school, uh, just as a way to kind of take a break from the the legal analysis. But how are you able to juggle those two things when you were there? Yeah, you know, I I didn't have great ambitions to get you know the high grades and you know become a part. Uh, associate at a white shoe firm where, you yeah. know, yeah, yeah the, uh, the, the high grades matter. So, you know, that, that certainly took some of the pressure off, uh, as it related to time. So, yeah, I, you know, I directed the libel show band, probably wrote a couple plays when I was in law school. You know, I still had my undergraduate friends who tended to be a little bit more on the creative side. Uh, you know, uh, when I was there at UVA, uh, was the years when Dave Matthews was playing the local uh, the local club called Tracks? So you know there was there was a whole scene around around that. It was just a different time. Cool. 
Did you, when you were in law school, were you starting to think, at, at what point did you start thinking about what you wanted to do after law school? You know, a little bit during law school, um, I got exposed uh, at two, two very interesting summers. One summer I sold cars hmm. and um, in Queens, and hmm. it, uh, it went really well. Met a lot of interesting people. Uh, uh, you know, I'd always been fascinated with New York, with, you know, the whole family in New York and, you know, growing up in, in Virginia. So it was, you know, living in the city. And the second summer I worked at uh, the New York Stock Exchange and market surveillance. And um, it was it was pretty interesting work. I uh, basically helped make a case against somebody who was, you know, at the at this, you know, grunt level literally listening to, you know, recordings and documents and all of that of somebody who was trading ahead in a, uh, in a security. Hmm. Interesting. Did, uh, what did your classmates think when you told them that you were going to go spend your first summer of law school selling cars in New York city? I don't know who I would have told, <laughs> <laughs> you, know, um, you know, it was a funny summer cause I, I lived in a, uh, I, I lived in a converted synagogue on 7th between C and D that was uh, at a, uh, a distant relative of mine from my mom's side. And I was living with like this guy who was a really nice guy, but he was like, I was really into movies at the time. And I was like, yeah, what good movies have you seen? Because I knew there was all these art, artsy theaters in the city. And he's like, I haven't been to the movie in 25 years. <laughs> you know? And this guy disappears one day. He's got a ponytail. He cuts the ponytail, braided on the wall, and he's gone. Parting gift for you? Parting gift, or just he? I called his, uh, I called his brother, saying like, you know, he disappeared. What happened? And he's like, oh, he just goes upstate to clear his head. So I ended up, you know, working market surveillance. I just, you know, uh, really fell in love with my wife. So she's in D.C., you know, uh, working on Capitol Hill. I'm up here. You know, we're, we're going back and forth in the summer, and, you know, it was, that was, you know, uh, that was nice. I mean. Yeah. Did you, when you were in law school, were you thinking about having a career that blended your creative side and the legal side? Was that important to you when you when you got out of school? You know, and it came true to, to uh, you know, to a certain degree, uh, and we'll talk about it later, but I did take an entertainment law class mm-hmm. uh, where I learned you know, enough about the, the industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had aspirations to be involved in creating the product, you know, not, you know, selling it or representing it or, you know, what, what the lawyers do. Um, and, uh, um, but I did learn some, some things in that class to at least get the, the structure for when I, you know, worked for a couple of years at Sony Music. I had a, uh, you know, a background in it that was mm-hmm. helpful. What was the first job you took out of law school? Um, that was, that was my first job. Sony Music, uh, kind of, uh, you know, low man on the totem pole in the business affairs department doing, uh, sampling, huh. uh, and licensing. Um, you know, I did that for a summer too. Oh, okay. That's Sony BMG. Okay, cool. Yeah. I was, uh, you're a, you're a young guy. It was, it was, there was no BMG then for Sony. <laughs> I did it, uh, I interned my, my first summer was at Sony BMG because I, I also had 550 a- Madison? I think so. I don't remember where it was. It, I was very '90s. I rollerbladed there. Used to rollerblade to work. I don't know how to. I don't know how to <laughs> roller skate. Yeah, Lee doesn't know how to ride a bike either. That's really? True. No. So when people say it's like riding a bike, like <laughs> you just uh, you're like what? I assume they're they're accurate, but yeah, <laughs> you're you're revealing way too much personal information about me. <laughs> Craig likes it. <laughs> um, Why can't you ride a bike? You know, you have to, your parents gonna, are awesome. Why, how, why do they fail you? You know, we, we didn't talk about this, but full disclosure, Adam is my cousin, <laughs> mom's uh, my mom's second cousin. So um, you'll have to ask them the next family get-together. I think I'm going to ask them in cross-examination style. I might have <laughs> even learned that in law school. My brother also does not know how to ride a bike. That's so weird. So it's consistent. So they we, didn't pick favorites. We would stand by the window and watch our friends ride bikes. When we were in high school and junior high school, just watch them right away from us. Uh, the radio listeners at home can't see it, but I'm turning my collar around. <laughs> <laughs> so how much of your job at Sony was doing legal work? It was all based in what uh, 
the recording rights. Mm-hmm. So it would start with researching what Sony's rights were, which uh, depending on uh, the form of the contract, which changed slightly over the years. And, so, and But what was really cool, they would talk about all forms of recordings here to after known. So there could be something like written in the 30s, right? Yeah, you know, recorded in the 30s. That you know they would have the rights to sample in the '90s. Mm-hmm. Um, there were certain clauses that we would look for, uh, compilation clauses. Uh, we would look for uh, funny. Uh, um, uh, I hope I'm not revealing any state secrets, but Mariah Carey had a clause that said that she, she couldn't have her recordings be put on any others with ones that were cheesy in nature. <laughs> And so, you know, I guess that's, you know, when they teach you in law school not to have the vague terms, mm-hmm. but I guess they didn't teach that. At, uh, As you can see, in 50 years, that term means nothing. Yes. That, that, that phrase yeah. might go totally out of fashion. Exactly. I mean, one person's M&M is another's Engelbert Humperdinck's. I mean, you know, you never know. <laughs> but, but, but no, basically we were grounded in, in, the, in the, the rights that we had, and then we would— um, negotiate terms sometimes it was for I, I had sampling i had some movie did a little bit of movie work did charity work hmm. so like if a radio station wanted to put together a compilation album they were doing yeah. it at the time um so we would uh you know we would basically do the license agreement we had form agreements but then there would be uh, uh there would be some give and take and it would be you know overseen by the department did you enjoy it you know uh i did uh, for for the most part, I ended up getting hearing the siren song of Wall Street a little bit, um, which which kind of drew me away from it. But uh, no, I, I did. I, I got uh, I got to meet some interesting and passionate people, uh, for sure. The the industry was uh, the threat to the industry at the time, or they viewed it as a threat, and uh, was Napster. Hmm. So I had a kind of a side project. Uh, researching Napster, Napster and digital rights and how that all was changing with peer-to-peer networks and, you know, should the uh, record companies through the RIAA, you know, go hard against, right. you know, the 14-year-old kid who's downloading right. something on Napster. And, yeah. you know, so there was some, there, there was some, some pretty cool, cool lessons there. And, um, and then you said you ended up going from Sony to work on Wall Street. Yes. Tell us a little bit about what that transition was like? You know, it was, uh, I mentioned earlier, I liked that business school, law school hybrid class that I took. Um, and, you know, Sony was great. It, it didn't pay much. Um, it was, uh, and I didn't really see a full trajectory of my career through the, mm-hmm. you know, through the record business. I was young. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. In some ways, I probably, if I would have stayed there, who knows? It might have been might have been very good. But I went to, um, Wall Street was very hot at the time. And I wanted to learn about, uh, you know, really learn about business. And, um, you know, I have a, a, a really good friend, uh, you know, who, did his JD MBA and, uh, you know, worked in investment banking and through some family friends, met some people in investment banking. So wanted to, to learn more about it and do it. And I, I took a job actually as an analyst, which was, which was like a real scrub job. Mm-hmm. I mean, like hundred hour a week. They, they did a book on DLJ at the time. Uh, there was actually a national best-selling book called monkey business, which described the, the life of the group, that I was in, and they changed the names to protect the innocent. But you know, I think I think uh, one of the guys I did a bunch of work for, they called him Bubbles in the book, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. So you know, big egos uh, would work on. I, I started dreaming in Excel. It you know you had beepers. You know right. I'd hear the beeper buzz on my side, even if it uh, um, you know wasn't doing that. Kind of like when you wear a hat, you still feel mm-hmm. like you wore a hat. Um, the, uh, you know, we would put the, uh, the presentation that, you know, uh, that we would slave on, you know, uh, in the black car to go to the Hamptons at two o'clock in the morning. So the managing director, you know, could see it, but, uh, it was, you know, learned a ton, uh, 
about using Excel and word processing, but also, you know, eventually through, uh, through osmosis, you know, just about how uh, companies are capitalized and, right. uh, you know, the competitive nature of, of getting them money with all kinds of different, you know, products. Did you feel like your legal background was helpful? A little bit. Um, you know, it's occasionally uh, they would have me look at uh, terms. I, I got involved in, in the M&A department. I got involved in a uh, uh, corporate defense hmm. and looking at like poison pills and, mm-hmm. and all of that for, uh, uh, you know, uh, to help advise the client in, in our own, you know, the, the bank, you know, for, for what they would be doing. Uh, so that, that definitely helped. What about the, the law school training? How did that help or, or did it have no impact on the 100-hour work week and um, the experience that you had at DLJ? You know, there's definitely, it's funny, um, I'm kind of jumping ahead chronologically, but out of nowhere, um, I was on a phone call with a guy who used to be the director of security for Disney, and he told me that he dropped out of law school after one year, but to the day, he still does IRAC. And, you know, issue rule, uh, hmm. two A's, right? Analysis. Uh, issue rule, application, conclusion. Right. There's analysis, application, conclusion, and some Iraq. I just skipped the analysis. Iraq. Iraq. But anyway, he, uh, I didn't really know that. My wife told me that. But the, uh, um, yeah, he was, that way of thinking to answer, you know, your question directly, you know, definitely there's a logical, you know, kind of training of the of the left brain, you know, if then else, you know, I remember my contracts professor literally would put out flowcharts, and you know, I, I have noticed that. Uh, in, in thinking back to law school, some of the people who were engineers, who went into law school and had that, you know, totally. that, that that kind of training, you know, uh, that that I had some exposure to. There's some of it in music too, actually. As much as people think the music can be like a right brain thing, there's definitely, you know, structures and forms and, you know, A leads to B leads to C type stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, a lot, a lot of, uh, a lot of my uh, career experiences have been uh, OJT. You know, so, but but law school definitely was a was a good base for it. And the, you know, the Socratic method, um, I had a really really. Um, kind of superstar, tough professor who tore me to shreds. I had no idea. I just, I just couldn't think in the dimensions. My kids think in the dimensions like way more than I did, you know, pr- probably because they get it from my wife. But this guy was a, was a stand-up comedian in the Catskills and <laughs> also a, you know, University of Chicago trained law and economics guy. And he was, I mean, he was like if the paper chase was in the borscht belt. I mean, it was, it, <laughs> he was rough. And, you know, it wasn't fun being in his torts class, but, um, you know, I, I, uh, I, I had a class with him in my third year, actually, uh, that was quite good. And, you know, things had calmed down by then. It was like, okay, yeah, I, I took my medicine and, you know, I went to the gym and it worked. It wasn't fun, but it worked. I think the world might be a little different now, but would you advise someone who said they might be interested in a career in finance to consider law school? Uh, no, not necessarily. You know, I would think, uh, I think it's a helpful skill for finance, but I think there's probably engineering, mm-hmm. accounting, um, you know, studying finance itself. Uh, there's, there's plenty of good undergraduate business programs. Um, I'm, tuned into all this because my daughter is applying to, hmm. uh, to college right now. She's a senior in high school. So, um, you know, I think, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say go to law school, you know, as an intellectual exercise. Gotcha. How, how long were you at uh, DLJ? Uh, I was there for a little over two years. And were you married at the time? Were you, did you have a family at the I time? I got, ma- yes. Uh, I didn't have kids yet, but I, I was married. You were married. And did the decision to leave that world or to leave DLJ have anything to do with work-life balance or what, what motivated the, yeah, there the was next a, step? There was a merger with Credit Suisse First Boston and, uh, and the, um, we were thinking of having kids. 
and we were thinking of getting out of the city and, and having a house. And, you know, the culture at, uh, at DLJ was, was a, a very much a work hard culture. But I, there's, there's two things that I can say that, that kind of uh, made me reassess, if you will. Uh, plenty of happy people, plenty of people with great values in investment banking and in DLJ mm -hmm. specifically, plenty of them. But when I went, I, I remember going to, you know, a fancy party in Westchester and, and so on and so forth. It was great. It was, it was a beautiful party. But pretty much everybody was divorced, mm -hmm. you know, uh, you know, uh, wasn't, wasn't the happiest of crowds. And, you know, after like, you know, these guys would go to strip clubs. I mean, it was like, it was like stereotypes almost. Right. And I was like, you know, you can kind of see that. And it's like, do I want to be, you know, uh, yeah, those guys make a ton of money. I mean, they, they crush it, absolutely crush it. But uh, what they give in, what they, you know, have to give up in return uh, is time. And, right. you know. yeah. were, you, were you thinking about, when you were deciding what your next step was going to be, were you thinking about your time at Sony, thinking about uh, pursuing something more creative? Were you thinking about staying in finance? What, what was going through your mind as you were you deciding know, I, next steps? I put together a, uh, I actually recorded an album while I was at, uh, at DLJ, kind of on the side. And, you know, just with some, met some New York musicians and um, with the extra 10 hours a week you had. Yeah, to, exactly. To and, and, you know, it's just burning the candle at both ends. It's almost like yeah. you talk about training, like, like almost like train myself to like, for years I've stayed up till, you know, sometimes I'll stay up till two in the morning, you know? And, um, but, um, yeah, I, at that point, I, you know, I graduated a little bit younger. I was a little, you know, a little bit going straight through. So it was, it was still that time. Right. I, didn't, I didn't know my ass from my elbow is, is the bottom line, you know? And, uh, you know, it's, uh, but, you know, was, you know, was married and, you know, no kids yet and, you know, trying to figure out uh, what would make the most sense. And what, what eventually made the most sense uh, was actually taking a nice combination of the, uh, of the young legal skills and enough information, enough knowledge to be dangerous about how M&A works and got involved in a family business doing acquisitions. Uh, we built up... Uh, the company that was really the entree into the security investigative world for me, we built it up through acquisition. And my job was to uh, help set up the company and to do the acquisitions and to integrate the acquisitions and eventually, you know, move that more into a, uh, uh, you know, more of an operational role. Why don't you talk a little bit, a little bit more about the family business, what it is, what you do, how it got started? Sure. Um, the there's been a couple iterations. So uh, the the one that I just mentioned, um, my father and a partner of his uh, were working for a uh, a company um, based in San Francisco, but had a national presence in the security guard industry, and um, they realized, you know, that between them, you know, they had the network and the knowledge and the capabilities to form a consultancy, uh, and that consultancy was called Safer Rossetti. And uh, I was brought in, as I mentioned before, uh, to help do the acquisitions. We acquired uh, some small practices, uh, one in California, one in Texas, eventually one in Oakland and another in Virginia. Uh, there was actually a forensics lab uh, that we rolled up. We, we did it in partnership uh, with uh, Omnicom Group, and then we... Um, we bought out Omnicom's interest and were sold it to a uh, to a small public company right before the financial crash. So, being any kind of public company wasn't necessarily the bee's knees, but mm -hmm. uh, being a a small cap public mm -hmm. company was certainly not the bee's knees. But it it worked out well, you know, uh, you know, for the family, um, for the uh, you know, for the shareholders and, and so on and so forth. But, uh, you know, it's a, uh, uh it was a definitely an interesting, that, that was about a, what was that, an eight, eight and a half year cycle of, uh, you know, you know, being a, being a part of the business 
and then after we sold it, stayed on uh, as uh, under an employment contract as management. And I was chief operating officer of the group that included the uh, the consolidated acquisitions I mentioned earlier. How was the transition from acquisitions when I guess you were drawing on your experience DLJ, and it sounds like you slowly transitioned into more of a, an operational role there and oversaw operations. How was that transition? Were you kind of learning on the job? Were you drawing on some of your previous work experience? Yeah. Um, it actually worked out really nicely because, um, and I think law school helps with this to bring it back to, yeah. back to that, you know, learning how to ask the right questions and really listen uh, and structure that in um, into a, a corporate entity was basically what my job was. So if in acquiring the group in San Francisco, spent a lot of time really learning that business right. from the owners, both in selling it, but also through the due diligence process. Uh, Omnicom, you know, as essentially our corporate parent in the LLC, you know, had a pretty rigorous and disciplined, you know, process uh, where, uh, you know, we would, you know, basically have to answer the question, how is this going to make money for, you know, for the firm? How is, and how are one and one going to equal more than two? Because, you know, uh, you got to pay for the lawyer's fees and the accountant's fees and, you know, just the time uh, and effort it takes, uh, you know, for either party, you know, to do a deal. So in get, in doing those deals and thinking through, okay, well, uh, you guys are going to be our invest. You guys are going to really help us get into the law firms in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And then, if those clients have an issue in New York, we can help them in New York. You know, so on and so forth. And oh, you guys do computer forensics, uh, and you even have a mini lab. We don't really do computer forensics. You know, yet in New York, we're subbing it out over here. You know, yada yada yada. Just to, to start to think about how, um, you know the two businesses can operate both on the, you know, the revenue side as well as the, you know, some of these were, were small businesses that if, you know, they're spending their time doing administrative work, doing accounting, doing billing, doing, you know, shopping for a health plan, you know, uh, other things like that that I'm sure you guys experience right now. If you, sure. if you can spread out, you know, that skill, um, you know, Throughout a, a larger enterprise, you know, you can do a little bit, a uh, little bit better at the bottom line. At the end of the day, did you um, find one one area more interesting or more fulfilling the the kind of acquisition or growing the business role, which I know is interconnected to the operational role or the day to day operational oversight role? Did, was one more interesting to you? Did you feel like one was more in line with what you wanted to be doing long term? You know, it's funny. Um, the Rossettis uh, were just older than us. And uh, uh, Richard Rossetti uh, had had some experience within Kroll. And he basically said something that came true. He's like, all the councils, you know, because my, my role was general counsel. I did the, the legal yeah. work for the company as well as the acquisitions, which, which you know, luckily was pretty minimal. And um, he said, all the general counselors in this business want to actually do the business. <laughs> and I did. I started taking on, you know, selling projects and taking on clients and delivering services, which is what I'm doing today. Right. Um, and I like it. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to help a company, uh, you know, navigate its risks, security risks, integrity risks. Uh, it's... It's interesting to try to do that proactively uh, when for a lot of organizations, you know, sometimes there's things that they have to do, you know, they're legally compelled to do, but a lot of, you know, proactive security measures were, you know, our company, the companies I've been involved with, and, and I personally have developed expertise, a lot of it's voluntary, right? It's like, you know, it, it's advisable that you have a, you know, an integrated access control system and video system. Nobody's telling you thou shalt, thou, thou must, mm -hmm. you know, um, with, with limited exception, you know, sometimes industries and, and, and certain things where you have to do background checks. But, you know, the, this trying to, you know, the, the constant challenge is articulating 
return on investment. Uh, and so going back to, um, you know, both the acquisition work as well as just the work, you know, at, uh, in investment banking, it's, it's similar. You, you literally have to break it down and show this is why, you know, you put in a dollar and you get $2. Or somebody says, I put in a dollar, I want to get $5, you know, across whatever kind of enterprise it is. See, it's the equivalent of a good kind of transactional attorney for uh, for a company that's trying to create documents to protect in the event of a worst case scenario, which most people don't want to think about, right? I mean, that's it's just direct parallel between that kind of work and, and security work. Exactly. Like, I, I remember I had a professor in law school who would, would do the formula, right, which is uh, likelihood times impact, right? So if there's a 2% chance that, you know, a million dollar problem is going to happen. Well, it's worth $20,000. Yeah. If there's a 4% chance, it's worth $40,000. Well, that's in a perfectly cookie cutter, hyper rational world, which we all know we don't live in. And, uh, but, but trying to navigate through that and articulate it cleanly is, uh, is the, is the challenge. So how were you, I don't want you to give away any, uh, secret sauce, but how were you conveying to, to clients that message? Really focusing on the on the hard dollar costs, you know, not not the theoretical hypothetical type stuff, but the the hard dollar stuff. You're already spending forty two thousand dollars on this. You can spend twenty eight thousand dollars on it, and you're better off. You're already spending five hundred and fifty thousand dollars on this. You can spend three hundred twenty five thousand dollars on it, and you're better off. Right. What was, tell us a little bit about starting VRI. That was, um, you know, we named it. Um, we were going after a contract uh, to do overseas uh, police advisory. And it stood for Vigilant Resources International. And uh, I don't know if I ever really loved the name. <laughs> the, uh, I'm, I'm currently you know, marketing under safer intelligence and security. But, um, you know, it's so funny. I was at a, uh, I was at a party with lawyers in DC and they're like, you're in the oil business you know, <laughs> resources. And I was thinking resources. It was kind of like a hedge between like, Oh, we could have staff, we could have stuff, right. we could have, you know, so sure. on and so forth. But, um, VRI was basically when our employment agreements, um, we, we renewed them for a year uh, at the, at the public company. And, um, that public company was divesting and selling its assets. And we decided just to go hang a shingle mm -hmm. and, uh, really concentrate on doing the, doing the casework, being a practitioner. And, uh, that's primarily what I've been doing for the last, uh, eight years. I, uh, developed a, uh, a niche business of crime analysts. Uh, and I sold that business to a company in New Jersey a couple of years ago. Um, and, uh, but for the most part, you know, it's been serving really diverse clientele. I mean, uh, folks who want to be proactive on risk or, you know, have to be reactive because they're dealing with, you know, litigation, um, you know, they, uh, it runs can you give the us, Can you give us a couple test yeah. cases without revealing any client confidences, obviously, but a couple, you know, who's who's the typical person who comes to you and says, I need some help? Yeah, I'll go down a couple tracks. So there was a, a law firm uh, that, uh, th this was kind of interesting, did a bunch of work with through VRI. Um, a law firm that was representing a number of overseas companies that were under the scrutiny of the SEC. And the, uh, they had, the law firm was helping them navigate their subpoenas for electronic evidence. So uh, we had the, and there were also uh, allegations of fraud and investigative matters related to it. So our job in was to handle the investigations and the forensics under the attorney-client privilege and direction 
of the law firm and do it in a way that would withhold technical scrutiny and meet right. the SEC standards on the evidence, uh, you know, how it's handled and how it's produced and how it's mined. And uh, we're talking about, you know, stuff off of cell phones and computers sure. and, you know, from, you know, pretty much from Asia Pacific. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, um, that, that was an interesting case because we had to navigate, you know, management personalities, other lawyers, sure. um, the cultural differences about um, uh, how you do forensics is pretty, pretty interesting. That, mm-hmm. So there's a, there's a line of business that goes down, you know, there's a company that's in litigation under regulatory scrutiny uh, is, is looking to, uh, you know, get through a difficult time. Uh, or a challenging time, you know, um, it's really incredibly diverse. Uh, you know, if you think about it, uh, take a step back and think about it this way, pretty much anything where you're navigating finding facts Mm -hmm. for either a litigation, litigation context, a transactional context where you want to do some kind of diligence, um, and, um, on the security side, it's really rooted in doing a risk assessment, and uh, there's there's different technical methods for doing risk assessments, like for a chemical plant or for an electric uh, generating facility, uh, for warehouses and the logistics supply chain, and got some exposure, you know, to that through Safe Rosetti, which was very diverse with with a number of niche companies that we acquired and learn the business and built the relationships with the people who could, you know, deliver those services at a technical level. So, uh, at VRI, um, you know, we've maintained and enhanced and grown that, and now Safer Intelligence, we've maintained, enhanced, and grown that network, you know, in a way that, you know, we can't, we, we certainly can't be all things to all people, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, within, uh, w- within our, our niche, niches, <laughs> you know, uh, going down the security investigations and intelligence track, there's a whole sort of you know, open source intelligence, how you, how you mine. And it, it gets pretty interesting from a legal standpoint, right. um, you know, not just the U S is, you know, uh, laws and ethics around privacy, but the, the world's depending on where you're yeah. operating. And, um, you know, uh, those three security investigations, intelligence, going down those three tracks, you know, uh, it really starts with a, what problem are you trying to solve? And then, you know, we take from those sort of puzzle pieces and, and skill sets to, to take on what we, what we feel comfortable that we can actually deliver a result on and the client will say, yeah, that was worth the money. G- given your dad's background and kind of growing up in a law enforcement family, mm-hmm. do you think that your 17-year-old self would be surprised that you're working in kind of a law enforcement adjacent space or a, I know you're not doing all law enforcement, yeah. but but uh, it, it is kind of adjacent to that space. Do you think he would be surprised at kind of the career path you've taken? Wow. My 17-year-old self. Or your, or your 21-year-old self. Okay. Uh, I, was, I, I, was, I was already popping pimples in the mirror. And, <laughs> you know, um getting blocked going up for a dunk against some 6'9", dude. Oh, but, at, least, uh, at least you could dunk. Yeah, That's exactly. It. We just won the uh, old guy league in, in Ridgefield. Oh, congratulations. Great. Thank you. Thank you. The uh, I think I was one for 25 in the championship game. But, <laughs> one, one dunk? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 24 off the rim. <laughs> <laughs> they, <laughs> um, no, I mean, it, it's not entirely surprising that, that I'm in an adjacent space. I mean, you know, my, uh, my father's amazing. You know, he's, uh, he's imparted a ton of wisdom. Uh, you know, he's, he's, you know, operated on, you know, some pretty, with some pretty incredible organizations and, and done some, you know, some pretty innovative things that, you know, I was exposed to, you know, growing up and, uh, you know, certainly in working with him, uh, I've gotten to meet, you know, uh, just, just be involved in things that are, you know, consequential and, you know, uh, you know, take uh, take very seriously. So, it's a it's a fascinating career trajectory. Um, I'm wondering if you have any advice for, you know, someone who is younger, maybe in law school, maybe not in law school, who thinks that, 
you know, they want to be in, in a similar field or, or have a similar, uh, you know, do the type of work that you're doing now? Is there any advice that you would give them? Any types of experience they should get? Any types of training? Um, what would you say? I think really being curious and developing that curiosity into an ability to ask the right questions, really listen, I mean, really listen and, and understand um, how you can get to an outcome even when people are at each other's throats, even when people, you know, uh, think it's very dire, you know, uh, keeping a cool head, being very patient, that, that kind of stuff, you, you learn that. You can learn that in all kinds of disciplines and, and fields. You know, I, I kind of wish I, I knew more about engineering. Um, you know, uh, um, and, and I say that, not, not that I'm saying everybody should rush and go become an engineer or a computer engineer, but the, you know, the world, and, and now I'm going to bring it back to security specifically, the, the way that we operate, um, all the fundamental stuff, uh, I think is going to be there from the beginning to the end of time about, you know, right and wrong and doing the right thing and, uh, you know, having character and long-term relationships and, and, and all of that. So that's, that, that's super important no matter how we do our computing and how we do our communications. But there's definitely been a, a shift uh, that, you know, I'm seeing in the world uh, – I'm definitely reading about all the time uh, about how, you know, everything's a computer. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, uh, your car is a computer, your refrigerator is a computer, uh, so on and so forth. So that has implications uh, for security. That has implications for privacy mm-hmm. uh, and really being, you know, tuned in to, to what's really going on uh, with, um, with industry. Because at the end of the day, you know, uh, security is a very in, – in investigations as well. I mean, they really are interesting team sports that just kind of – you know, you know I, I've worked with a lot of people who've come out of government. And I've seen a transition from government uh, to the private sector where – it can be a difficult transition because the incentives, what the organization is about, what gets rewarded, right. what gets uh, encouraged or discouraged, mm-hmm. some some risk taking, mm-hmm. you know, good risk taking gets gets beat down in certain government organizations that you need to have that risk taking in right. order to, you know, uh, be entrepreneurial or entrepreneurial, sure. if I may use that word. Like if you're the security guy, and, and I'm saying entrepreneurial, if you're the security guy at a big corporation, you're not driving revenue. Of course. Uh, but so you have to go out there. I mean, some places you do if, if security is baked into the value proposition of the company. you know. But it, if, if you have to you know, go grab budget from all sorts of different places, and grab resources and put them together across, you know, whether it's geographies, departments, people, you know, you have to really, you have to be very organized. You have to, um, you have to have a plan and that kind of, that kind of thinking and that kind of, those kind of capabilities have, has radically changed, I think, Mm -hmm. in the security industry. Uh, You know, uh, maybe 25 years ago and, and, you know, I I wasn't in it, but I I hear people, you know, who I've worked with tell me this all the time, you know, it used to be in the facilities department. It still is in some places and it should be in some places, but um, it's, it's really become more of a boardroom issue because certain security issues go right to, you know, are people going to buy a ticket, you know, to go on that plane? Are people gonna, you know, feel safe on the on the train? Are they gonna, mm-hmm. you know, are they gonna go to that hotel? Are they gonna go to that to that, you know, multi-billion-dollar mall they just put up in mm-hmm. New Jersey? You know, mm-hmm. you know, so on and so forth. Yeah. Last question I have for you is: uh, Where does someone who wants to listen to some of your music find it? Wow, you know, I um, thank you for asking that. 
I'm actually in a recording period right now, and I, I'll announce it right here. I am uh, I'm going to uh, put it on the internet. I think I'm going to call it the Adam Project. But, I like it. Uh, and I'm, I have not yet, everything that I've done musically uh, so far has raised money for children's charities. Cool. I, uh, I did a concert that raised enough money for uh, 250 cleft palate surgeries. And then I helped uh, the St. Barnabas Hospital up in the Bronx, their child advocacy center. And then I raised money for a better chance with a, uh, with a musical performance in Ridgefield. So I'm, I, have, I have 20 something years worth of songs. And wow. I just sat down on my phone and I picked uh, what I thought were the best ones. And so far I've recorded five of them. And I want to do something with them, and I want to do something with them that ends up that you know uh, raising some money. Uh, and uh, I think I'm going to call it the Adam Project. Um, we know, know you're not going to call it VRI. No, definitely not going to call it exactly. <laughs> I'll think it's an oil company. <laughs> but <laughs> um, so yeah, I don't know where. I'm, if you have any suggestions, uh, I'll take them because I. Uh, it, it's funny, I actually. Uh, I actually have a guy. Uh, who I went to college with, who's a digital marketing guy, who I'm just going to bounce this all off of and see if he could, he could help me, uh, help me figure out the best way to, uh, best way to do it. Because I, you know, I, I don't really. When I raised the money with the other stuff, it was word of mouth. And the mm -hmm. one in uh, when we did in Ridgefield, I had a nice volunteer team. But uh, the, uh, yeah, I, I don't really know. You know, I, I'm not like Bill Belichick who says snap face. You know, I know, <laughs> I know there's, I know there's uh, Facebook and blah blah blah. But uh, well, when you yeah. figure it out, let us know. We'll add it to the bio for the for the episode. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. Do you have anything further? No, Adam. It was great coming by and uh, thank you. To hear an interesting career and see family, which is always a, a plus for me. So thanks for coming by. No, it was thank great. you. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Appreciate yeah. it.